The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization in Memphis, Tennessee. And The Permanent Record is our podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. Today, in our first episode of 2021, we're going to talk with Liliana Segura. Liliana is a reporter currently for The Intercept, but she's been a writer for quite some time and has written for many other publications. She's an award-winning journalist for her coverage of the U.S. criminal justice system. We've invited her today to talk about uh, the Trump administration's execution spree that uh, began uh, last summer and proceeded almost up until the day that Joe Biden took office, including the period after the election. We invited Liliana here to give us some perspective on her time in Terre Haute, Indiana, where the federal government has its death row, uh, what this means for our justice system, and we talked a little bit about the future of the death penalty in America. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for joining us, Liliana. It's good to have you on the permanent record. It's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, I wish uh, the topic weren't quite so somber, but um, I guess we'll hopefully get to some of the good news before the end of the podcast. But you have been doing a whole lot of reporting on the federal death penalty and its use over the last several years. And so that's why we wanted to have you on here. We thought it was a uh, a good time to do that, um, having come through uh, an administration that um, seemingly desperately wanted to uh, reintroduce and utilize the death penalty to one that hopefully uh, will stop uh, using it and could possibly lead us to uh, abolishing it completely. So. Um, the timing worked, and I know that these are difficult conversations for you because of the nature of, of your reporting and, and how you have to do it. So so I do want to, if you don't mind me asking a question about that, about sort of the nature of how you cover uh, federal executions. What, what does it entail as a reporter? Yeah, that's a good question, and thanks for, for asking it. You know, I've been writing about the death penalty and covering the death penalty for many years, you know, and 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 the and most of that um, until very recently has been at the state level um, for a long time. Before I moved to Nashville, I've been in Nashville for almost six years. I was living in New York and New York hadn't had an active death penalty in any meaningful way for, you know, long before I, I had moved there. And so it's only relatively recently that I've been in a place where there are executions happening in my own backyard. Um, as you know, Tennessee has uh, carried out many executions in the past few years, um, returned to the death penalty with a vengeance and has, you know, executed, what, five out of the last seven in the electric yeah. chair. So this is, it's really grim timing, but I've been sort of deep in it for, for a while. And it sort of got me, for better or worse, used to this kind of ritual of standing outside a prison uh, at the time of, you know, an execution being carried out. Um, when it came to the federal stuff, I mean, just to back up a bit, we all knew, those of us who pay attention to this issue, that Trump's uh, 
election, <laughs> uh, that the Trump presidency meant that federal executions were very likely to restart. I think everyone had that thought. And I remember at the time just sort of thinking, okay, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when, and how do I start to sort of cover this system in advance? You know, how do I anticipate this in my coverage? Um, so I knew that at some point I was likely to be covering federal executions under Trump. And if anything, it was a surprise how long it took <laughs> for us to get to that point. Um, I, I will say that my earliest conversations with some advocates and lawyers who handle these kinds of cases, they were not enthused about the prospect of suddenly having a lot of coverage of the federal system. They were kind of like, oh, are you sure you want to go there? Like, are you sure you want to make a lot of noise about this? Right. Kind of like, please don't poke the bear. You know, we don't, <laughs> we're just trying to kind of quietly um, represent our clients. And so it wasn't until Bill Barr announced in the summer of 2019 that, uh, the DOJ had requested something like five dates uh, to be carried out between it was December and January. Um, that ever suddenly there was this rush to kind of you know write about this about this issue, and, and I started making plans immediately to go to Terre Haute uh, just to kind of try to get to know this place and try to get to understand you know the history of this federal penitentiary and how it came to be the location where we uh, put to death. Uh, people under federal death sentences. So, so my first trip to Terre Haute was actually in the fall of 2019, uh, and then I went back a couple times and I wrote my first piece, kind of trying to get to know this place and that history. Um, uh, and that was published, I think, like New Year's uh, 2019, 2020. Um, but at that time, the, the first round of executions didn't go through, uh, and and it wasn't until. July of 2020 that we finally saw the first three carried out over the course of a week. And of course, by then we were in the midst of this pandemic. Yeah. Um, suddenly I couldn't go and do the kind of on the ground reporting I was planning to do, where I would hope to sort of talk more to the people in this community about how they felt about these executions. Um, so the experience of reporting on this has been really bizarre. I mean, fortunately, Terre Haute is about a four hour drive from Nashville. It's not hard to get there. I, I didn't, you know, I had to conduct myself in a very limited way when it came to, you know, just sort of all your usual um, reporting tasks. I just spent as much time as possible away from people. Right. Um, and and I should say, as a, you know, I, I did apply to act as a witness um, many, many times uh, over the course of these executions, but was rejected every time by the Bureau of Prisons. Um, I, I'm still trying to understand how they choose their witnesses. Yeah, how, uh, how many do they choose? Well, interestingly, they choose, well, they ch in theory, uh, they choose up to 10 media witnesses. Um, and as is the case in Tennessee and many other states, you know, they reserve a certain number of slots for, um, you know, the Associated Press or, you know, wires, um, also one reporter from the jurisdiction where the crime was committed, um, and at least one reporter from sort of the local area. So there was always like a local Terre Haute reporter and, and um, you know, Indiana reporters were there. Um, but, but, uh, and 10 is actually a large number, like compared to other states, you know, uh, but, but the thing is you apply, you fill out these forms in advance and they only tell you sort of like a week out, like, um, no, you haven't been selected. You know, in my case, I just received email after email saying, um, we cannot accommodate you at this time or something like right. very, you know, and it's, and with no explanation. And, uh, the last time I asked for any kind of, um, explanation as to what, what the parameters are, um, they basically told me that that's, 
that information is not publicly available, um, which is often the case with the BOP. So um, the most the most witnesses I ever saw, I think, among media were I think it was like eight. Um, and what was really weird was, you know, what they did was they scheduled these executions pretty much back to back. There was three the first week um, and then each subsequent month there was like about two you know, two per month, and they always were t- it took place the same week. And this was essentially because they bring in the execution team members to Terre Haute from other places, um, and they just want, you know, they don't want to be, they want to kind of make it as efficient as possible, right, for right. lack of a better... And yeah. convenient, right? And it's, and convenient. it's, it's about yeah. convenience for people who are executing another human, which is odd. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and just to just get a few more of the logistics clear. This is the only place that the federal government has uh, the capability of executing people, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, it, it's kind of where they chose. I mean, this kind of goes back to the the, the mid, mid to late 90s. I mean, this era where kind of post-crime bill mm-hmm. federal executions are, you know, being dramatically expanded. Um, more and more federal prosecutions are happening. Um, and uh, around that time, the people, there was only sort of a relatively small number of people under a federal death sentence at that point. And they had all been, they were all being held uh, on death rows in the sort of their respective states. And it wasn't until the late nineties that all these guys, they were all guys, um, were brought to Terre Haute, transferred to this new death row. And around the same time, this new uh, execution chamber was unveiled and it happened to be at the federal penitentiary in Terre Haute. Um, so, so it's like a relatively new phenomenon, you know, the first execution in that sort of in that space uh, and in the modern era really was Timothy McVeigh in, in 2001. Yeah. Um, and then there were two more uh, not long after that. And then after that, we didn't see any for, you know, 17 years. Right. So uh, three, to, yeah. three prior to the Trump administration. And, and one mm-hmm. of those was the Oklahoma City bomber, Timothy McVeigh. Um, yeah. Wow. So. um. And, and yet, this is pretty much overlooked. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of things going on in America in late 2020, early 2021. Um, but what do, what do you think, other than an insurrection at the Capitol and, a, and a, the end of a very turbulent presidency, um, why does this this issue, this, this, I mean, cause it's happened in Tennessee too, uh, it seemingly escapes the, the public's attention, right? That, that we are continuing this thing that, that, that surveys show us most people do not agree with. And, and you know, I, I see journalists like you devoting so much blood, sweat, and tears to the issue and, and writing it, researching it, and, you know, driving to Terre Haute and, and things like that. What is it going to take um, for Americans and Tennesseans to, 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 to take notice? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. I, I had really... F- thought that the return of the federal of federal executions after 17 years would be a bigger story. And once I was there on the ground in Terre Haute for that first round, I mean, there were reporters there, but, but I I think I was the only national, the only reporter from a national news outlet on the ground that week. I was certainly the only national news reporter on the ground for all 13. And I think, I think part of it had to do with the pandemic. That was like a very real problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And also with the fact that the BOP does not accommodate, it did not make it easy to do this reporting, let's just say um, (laughs) at all. Um, But I think, but you're right, you know, and and I think I've become sort of just inured to this fact that this is an issue that for the most part, 
you know, I care a lot about and I focus on a lot, but I'm used to it sort of flying under the radar, even when an execution is happening. And if anything, I mean, what's really interesting is these executions did eventually catch people's attention, but it wasn't really until the case of Brandon Bernard, who was executed on um, December uh, 10th, um, and he was the 10th person executed. So sort of towards the end of this execution spree. And that case kind of did break into the public consciousness. Uh, and part of the reason was because it was one of those cases that, you know, Kim Kardashian, um, it was up in arms about and, and people started, it kind of, there were these viral memes that went around and, and just the, the sort of blunt nature of the, of, of, of his case. I mean, it was a, it was a case where his role um, in the crime was really minimal compared to uh, the other people who participated. Um, his co-defendant, Christopher Vialva, who was actually the trigger man in that case, um, had already been executed. He was executed in, in September. And so there was a lot wrong with that case. And in fact, um, five out of the surviving nine jurors who sent him to death row spoke out in favor of clemency. And so there was this kind of sudden moment where, where where people did start to pay attention to these executions. But but otherwise, you're right. I mean, it was, they really flew under the radar. And I think part of it, you know, this is 2020 was just that this crazy year mm -hmm. where, you know, um, I remember being in Terre Haute during, after the shooting in Kenosha, you know, and during the protests, you know, mm -hmm. they, they started sort of in the wake of the George Floyd protests. And so there was this kind of bizarre disconnect with, you know, we've got these incredible marches for racial justice and this kind of transformative moment where there's all this activist energy and kind yeah. of ordinary people are waking up to these systemic problems. And yet these executions are starting and it feels like they're invisible. Yeah. Um, that, that was wild. weird. Yeah. It's wild. So on the ground or, or, you know, present for, for 13, all 13 of these executions, were there, were there any sort of trends or, or similarities in the cases or, um, that you noticed that you didn't expect or, or that, that sort of had gone unnoticed before? Um, you know, if anything, I think if you're familiar with the kinds of cases, the kinds of people who end up on death row, um, what I actually saw were, were some very familiar trends. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of, um, a lot of evidence of intellectual disabilities, of mental illness, um, each defendant, you know, you could sort of see, um, you could see in their background, the kinds of factors that we've come to expect or to, to see in, in, in clemency petitions and in, in mitigation reports. Um, but there was also some like really egregious um, examples of the way in which the death penalty is so politicized and has everything to do with who the att attorney general is and what jurisdiction this crime took place in. And, and you know, the, it's a lot of these cases were rooted in, well, I'll back up. I don't know if you remember during the Bush administration um, when John Ashcroft was the attorney general and made it a point, uh, really a policy to seek, uh, seek, uh, the death penalty in federal cases in jurisdictions uh, that themselves did not have the death penalty on the books. This happened in New York. It happened in Vermont. You know, there was this kind of push right. to to use the federal death penalty more. Um, and and this this included overruling his own um, 
his own federal prosecutors, his own U.S. attorneys um, at, at the time. And this policy continued under Alberto uh, Gonzalez. And so, so just uh, let's spell that out real quick. Yeah. So in states where the death penalty had been abolished, U.S. attorneys uh, who represent the federal government would would adhere to a policy of not seeking the death penalty generally. But Ashcroft flipped that and said, yeah, we're going to pursue the death penalty in places like New York and Vermont. Is that, am I hearing you right? Yeah. And, and, and in fact, some of these cases were actually in states, in states that were death penalty states, but for whatever reason, these U.S. attorneys had chosen not to bring uh, a, a capital okay. prosecution. I mean, that also happened. It happened in, it happened in the case of Lesmond Mitchell in Arizona. Lesmond Mitchell was, um, was uh, a Native American, the only only Native American on federal death row. In his case, um, that became a federal death penalty case over the objections of not only the local U.S. attorney, but the victim's family and the Navajo Nation, wow. which is where this 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 crime was committed. So, so, so there were layers of of racism, of of misconduct, of kind of just crass political um, maneuvering in in a number of these cases and uh, cases. And Lesmond Mitchell's was was I think probably one of the more egregious. Um, hmm. His, his trial was also moved to um, to Phoenix, um, and I never did get the jury, the exact racial breakdown of the jury, but it seemed very clear that it was an almost all-white jury. And when I spoke to the foreperson of that jury, it was kind of amazing because in her recollection, she was like, you know, it was really a jury of his peers. She really felt like he had gotten a fair trial, but they, they took it really seriously, and it was a really diverse jury and people from all walks of life. And when I asked her, well, it's like, oh, do you remember, I mean, how many black people or Latinos or, you know, do you remember the racial breakdown? She's like, well, I don't think there were any black people. I don't think there were any Latinos. I'm not sure if there were any Native Americans, <laughs> but it was totally, it was a really diverse, you know, and yeah. so you, those kinds of things that become very familiar when you study the death penalty, those were just, you saw that a lot. Orlando Hall, another, uh, he was the second the second black man executed during Trump's execution spree. He was sent to death uh, by an all-white jury yeah. um, in um, in in Texas, in, in a jurisdiction that was home to you know a long history of of, um, of excluding uh, black jurors uh, in, in in death penalty trials. So all of those systemic problems were yeah. really present throughout. Yeah. Well, the mechanics and the politics and the statistics of of all of this are are fascinating for you know observers like you and me. But but every single one of these cases usually has two sets of family members who are, um, you know, very differently, uh, in, involved. It tell, can you tell us about, you know, any, any contact you've had with, with families on either side, uh, throughout these 13 executions? Yeah. So the, the first man executed, um, Daniel Lewis Lee, um, that case was notable because it was a case where the victim's family, um, largely opposed his execution and in fact, largely opposed uh, the, the the death sentence from the beginning. Uh, there's a whole other sort of political history there, but, um, and I was in touch with them. Um, he was the first execution date set. And I remember talking to them in December of 2019, where they were, this was the sister of one of the victims and her husband, and they had planned to travel to Terre Haute for his execution. Um, to witness and and just sort of you know be there to say I oppose this, but they also felt an obligation to witness. Um, and when it when it when they heard the news that 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 his execution wouldn't go through in, in December of 2019, it was as it was supposed to. They were hugely relieved. You know, they're like, now we can go visit family. Now we can go do something like anything else, but mm -hmm. this. You know, this was just going to re-traumatize them. And so, 
Unfortunately, you know, you fast forward to July of 2020, now there's a pandemic and um, those same family members um, chose not to go to Terre Haute because they were fearful of the virus. Sure. Um, they didn't feel like they would be protected. And so they, they still spoke out in opposition, um, but it really, it really sort of exposed the lie um, that uh, Attorney General Bill Barr was sort of peddling uh, th- that claim that these executions were being carried out in the, you know, for the benefit of the victims' families, which is always a prosecutor saying yeah. this is all about victims' families. Um, and they were like, no, it, this isn't true for us. So, so I got to know them a little bit, but for the most part, I'll say, you know, it was tough getting um, getting uh, loved ones of the victims to talk to me. That the the BOP has a very um, tightly controlled kind of PR machinery, uh, I guess you could call it. And for those families who uh, support the execution and want to come and witness the execution, they have kind of handlers on the BOP side. Um, they they pay their way, they put them up in a hotel and they kind of, they, they give them an opportunity to um, address reporters after the execution. Um, and so, uh, in a number of these cases, after the execution took place, um, family members of the victims—that uh, was their their chance to kind of speak and address us as reporters. Um, one thing that I think is really important to to note is that you know that same opportunity is absolutely not afforded to the loved ones of the condemned. You know, yeah. none of the families of the people who are executed are invited to address the press. They're actually not allowed in that media area at all. Um, and neither the attorneys or the spiritual advisors, anyone connected to the people who are executed, they are explicitly barred from from that. And so. So I ended up getting to know a number of family members, um, not not uh, no thanks to the BOP, obviously, yeah. but but just by finding them through um, through activists um, and and sort of through other means. So, um, needless to say, they don't they don't get their um, travel or lodging paid. Um, the many of the family members of people who were executed could not afford to come to Terre Haute. Right. Um, and that was the point I was going to make is that the, mm-hmm. the family members of the condemned don't have their way paid to Terre Haute mm-hmm. and have to find their own way there and um, are in fact billed for other parts of the process. I don't know if that was your reporting or someone else's, but um, this it's interesting detail. It's, I don't want to get too tied up into it, but yeah, it, it, you, they have to raise money. They have to depend on the, the kindness of strangers to get to this place in the middle of the country where the federal government is going to execute their son. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that, that is how, yeah. I mean, one, one woman, uh, who I got to know probably the best, uh, the mother of Christopher Vialva, who was the seventh man executed, um, Lisa Brown, she, she, um, not only received help from her congregation, but also received help from her son's co-defendants, um, uh, as well as some of the guys on death row who knew her son. Uh, and that's how she managed to come and see him and, and witness his execution. Yeah, yeah. One of the firsts, uh, w- uh, one of the statistics throughout these 13 executions was the first woman since 1953, I believe, executed by the federal government. And that was Lisa Montgomery. Um, and I, I just wonder if you can tell us a little bit about that case, why this decision was made. I I don't have nearly the familiarity you do with these kinds of cases, but from my reading of some of the pleadings and the reporting about her, her mental capacity to understand what she was even doing there that day was probably 
not just not present. Like she just did not have the ability to understand what was going on. Is is that true? And how unusual and how severe was her um, was her mental disability, mental illness, as compared to others? Just if you could tell us a little bit about her case. Yeah. So, well, I should I should say that you know. I, out of the 13, I was only able to sort of do uh, stories about individual cases for a, a relative handful of these. You know, there were just too many cases. And Lisa mm-hmm. Montgomery's was understandably one of those cases that got a lot more attention than any of the others. Um, and so I actually took a step back and kind yeah. of, I didn't write a story specifically about her case. And so I didn't get to know it as well as some other reporters. Like there's a lot of excellent reporting on her case that gets into some of the the ins and outs of, of, of her case. But I will say, um, you know, Lisa Montgomery, the crime absolutely was, you know, one of those beyond the pale, horrible crimes that sort of instinctually, you just know this is not a crime committed by somebody mm-hmm. who is in their right mind. Mm-hmm. It's not. It, and, and so, so she was convicted, sentenced to death for, uh, the, she murdered, strangled a woman and a, a pregnant woman and then used a knife to cut out her unborn child mm-hmm. um, and abducted that unborn child. Um, the child survived miraculously, um, but, but obviously, you know, this this is the case that it, this is, there are these other, I mean, this is something that has happened before historically. Um, and, and one of the interesting things that, that became clear in the run-up to Lisa Montgomery's execution is that prosecutors who had handled cases like this um, spoke up and said, you know, 201, these are cases in which not only yeah. is the woman herself a survivor of, you know, horrendous trauma, um, but these cases are always rooted in some form of, of, of untreated mental illness. And that was absolutely the case with Lisa Montgomery. I mean, she, you know, I've read a lot of mitigation reports and a lot of clemency petitions. And sometimes those, those, documents can be so disturbing in what they lay out about a person's um, childhood, about their background, about the harrowing conditions of their, of their life, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and Lisa's is one of those that um, her, her life was a nightmare. She was right. brutally, brutally abused by the very parent people who should have been taking care of her from the time she was young. She was a victim of relentless sexual assault um, and, and later trafficked by her own mother. Um, she, um, as a result of that, I mean, she has, a, a t- she had a ton of untreated, you know, of trauma, um, but also meant severe mental illness. And so I can't speak to sort of her mindset at the time she committed that crime, but it was very clearly rooted in all of that. Um, I will say that by the time she was executed, the conditions of her confinement um, in advance of her execution um were so uh, restrictive and isolating that, you know, by all accounts, she had really decompensated yeah. and was totally dissociating, um, you know, didn't seem aware exactly of her surroundings in meetings with her lawyers and in meetings with her family. So it's a, it's a horrible, I mean, it's a really horrible case. Um, but what I like to remind people of is, you know, it, it's, it's also something we've seen some version of that, um, especially sexual abuse and trauma um, in, in so many cases, you know, so many cases uh, of men and women, um, you know, who, who end up in these circumstances. So so it's another one of those familiar um, elements, um, in it, you know, in many ways. Right, right. Just a tragic, tragic case. Um, shifting just real quickly to Tennessee. I mean, the the. You know, the obvious thing to even a casual observer at the federal level is, well, Donald Trump is the president. Uh, Jeff Sessions, uh, Bill Barr are the attorney generals. You know, 
this this is not surprising that we would you know flip the switch on a on a dormant uh, execution apparatus after you know 17 years tennessee's done the same thing uh, you know over the past more longer you know four or five years now i guess um and i know you 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 did, you know, tell me before we turned on the mics, and and I think even earlier in this interview that you know you follow the federal death penalty uh, a lot more closely than you do Tennessee. But I, I wonder if you can just compare and contrast a little bit the sort of the nature of Tennessee's um, return to um, executions as compared to the to the United States government. Yeah, well, there's there's actually quite a few parallels. I mean, well, well, first of all, I should should say, you know, I still don't know why you had asked about Lisa Montgomery, like why now, why was she among the people executed? Mm -hmm. And I really couldn't tell you, I don't know why any of these guys, uh, you know, any of the 13 were the ones who, who uh, came up for execution. And that's one of the big questions. Um, And also this kind of why now, you know, Um, and it really felt like the why now is because because they could, uh, because they have this power and, you know, they wanted to use it. And in Tennessee, in both cases, also in the case of the federal government and Tennessee, um, executions had been on hold for a long time in large part because there was not um, a mechanism available to carry these these executions out. Lethal injection has been the subject of all of this litigation going back years and years and years all over the country. And that was true here in Tennessee. And that was also true when it came to uh, the federal system. And so, um, as you may remember, I mean, Tennessee's executions didn't restart um, until after, in in the summer of 2018, there was a trial, um, essentially, Tennessee's new lethal injection protocol went on trial uh, and there was it was kind of the last litigation um, standing in the way of of carrying out executions using this new three drug protocol that had been devised and used in other states. And it's not to get too into the weeds, but it involves this drug called midazolam that's been linked to um, pretty disturbing botched executions. And, um, you know, the same legal team that represented Lisa Montgomery, you know, Kelly Henry Mm -hmm. uh, and her colleagues um, handled that trial, brought some really compelling evidence of a phenomenon that uh, we know as as pulmonary edema, essentially meaning that the lungs, you know, the combination of drugs being used here and specifically midazolam causes the lungs to fill with fluid and stand and and leads to this terrible harrowing drowning sort of sensation and and torturous death. And so that was all litigated um, in the summer of 2018. And when, when um, the when the men being uh, being represented by by Kelly Henry's team um, when they lost in court uh, very soon after we saw the execution of Billy Ray Eirick um, in 2018 and Billy Ray Eirick you know this is a horrible case involving a young girl who was the victim but Billy Ray Eirick also was clearly mentally ill mm-hmm. um, suffered from delusions there was all of this evidence uh, that that he also was not in his right mind um, and. So, you know, there's just a lot of parallels there between the return um, in Tennessee and the return on the federal level. I mean, what is so kind of surreal to see since then is how many people in Tennessee have been executed in the electric chair specifically because it is understood, I think, on the row here um, that lethal injection is not a painless sort of clinical uh, clean death. And, right. and it's disturbing how many people have opted for the electric chair here. Yeah. yeah. And the reality is the reason, and I don't know if this is your writing or not, but some something recently made the case, as I'm sure many, many of you writers have, that, you know, the reason we 
have ended up at lethal injection is for us. It's not for the people. <laughs> it's not for a painless, simple, quick execution. It's for the people watching and doing and experiencing it from the outside. And uh, um, I think, you know, those guys, as you say, they know that. <laughs> There's enough mm-hmm. enough mm-hmm. good reporting to know now that, that lethal injection is anything but painless and, and quick. Anyway, in the few remaining minutes that we have left, um, I mean, that promised, I think, at the beginning to try to end on a happy note <laughs> in, an inter- in an interview about the death penalty. But but Joe Biden won the election. Joe Biden campaigned uh, on many things, but on one was a promise to uh, not not carry out the death penalty, at least, if not abolish it. And, sh- you know, sure enough, there, there's an, uh, an act has already been introduced. A, a bill has been introduced in Congress to do away with the death penalty. What do you know about it? What do you know about its chances? What do you know about the Biden's administration, the Biden administration's commitment to this issue? Yeah, I mean, these are this is sort of what we're all looking at now. So I should say that the bill um, currently there, there there's a version in the Senate uh, that was brought by Dick Durbin relatively recently. And then the the the. Uh, on the House side, it was actually Representative Ayanna Presley. She brought this initially, uh, I believe, the same week as Bill Barr's announcement that executions would be returning. I mean, she was really sort of on top of this. Ah. And so, yeah. And, and and I was on a call not long ago where she was kind of providing an update about how many co-sponsors have, have you know, come up to, to support this. And in the wake of these federal executions, um, and specifically the execution of Brandon Bernard, she's it's gone from like 20 to 80 or something. So it's, it's, it's wow. uh, kind of yeah. amazing. Yeah. The federal executions have really revitalized this, um, the, the opposition to the death penalty. So that's, that is definitely some good news. Um, I will also say, um, what's interesting to me about the legislation in its current form is that there isn't this kind of default language about how the death penalty is going to be replaced with life, uh, by life without parole, which is, certain to become a fight at some point. I just, uh, I, I think that's an interesting mm-hmm, um, aspect mm-hmm. to it. It's uh, unusual. Um, but, you know, I, there's a lot that Biden can do on his own without waiting for for legislation. And, and the, the, the one of the major um, sort of asks right now is, uh, you know, people are calling on him to not only kind of issue a moratorium and say, there's not going to be any executions on my watch, but, you know, he could single-handedly commute the road. Yeah. You know, a lot of people are saying, just just commute all those sentences. There's 49 remaining. Just commute them all. And I have a really hard time imagining <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Biden doing that. Yes, me too. The, um, the author of the crime bill. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And yet, and yet he 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 did run on this issue, as did uh Kamala Harris. Uh mm-hmm. where I, I do think that to the extent that there's challenges and limitations, it it, it is going to be largely kind of, you know. Biden himself, like, does is he willing to go that far, and is he willing to expend mm-hmm. the political capital right. that it would take to do something like that? At least right now, I don't. Right. I have, I have my doubts. He's got a few other things on his plate, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, that that is that does at least give us some hope, and I think there's some some promise there that that you know folks are on it. And I'm, I'm going to throw a curveball at you because that's not happy enough. And I'm just going to ask you before we let you go. During during this last year of shutdown and work from home and trying to make your way to and from central Indiana, <laughs> what is it that has nothing to do with any of this that has brought you a little bit of joy? <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, I have some I have some things. My dogs. My of dogs course, are yeah. always, you know, Popular they're just answer, the best yeah. company. I mean, we've all become very needy with our pets and it's like they're just like, okay, I guess you're home all the time. You know, that's always very, very good. Um, uh-huh. I will say in defense of Terre Haute, this place I had hoped to get to know a little bit more, you know, just uh, um despite COVID, like there's some really kind of 
pretty parts, you know, there's, um, I learned some interesting things in my time out there, uh, not the least of which is that there's actually a sort of vibrant Syrian immigrant community wow. in Terre Haute that goes back generations. Um, and there's actually a historical marker somewhere in town that has called it um, Little Syria on the Wabash, like on the Whoa. Wabash River, which I just find interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and so, yeah. sorry, go ahead. Well, it, it's kind of that thing of, you know, I've felt fortunate to be able to get out of my house and have a sense of purpose during this COVID moment and learn a little bit more about this corner of the world that like, unfortunately it's, it's so much more than, than this policy that mm. just sort of, you know, has, was brought from on high by a kind of accident of history. And so, so I think um, I've met some really good people out there and some really good activists and have learned, you know, a bit about a place that I didn't know before. And so, and I hope to go back for better reasons. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope you get to go back there and I hope you get to go and, and find out more about about that region. And, and yeah, like that sounds like a really great project. And but but thank you so much, uh, Liliana. I'm sorry we, we don't have enough time to talk about all the many other things you can you could enlighten us to. But uh, we really appreciate you spending a few minutes with us on this topic and look forward to talking to you again uh, in the future. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for your work. I really appreciate it. That was Liliana Segura on the permanent record. You can read more of Liliana's work on The Intercept. Their website is theintercept.com. You can follow Liliana on Twitter, Liliana Segura, S-E-G-U-R-A, and there are two L's in Liliana, but not together. Liliana Segura on Twitter. She's very active there. Special thanks to Rhodes student and Just City student worker Isaac Segura, no relation, for helping produce this episode. And as always, thanks to Carla and Gilworth at the OAM Network for their support of this podcast and the podcasting community in Memphis. You can check out some of the OAM Network's other shows at theoamnetwork.com. Jeff Hewlett wrote the theme song for the permanent record. It's called She Got Gone. Jeff's been busy during pandemic. Check him out on Bandcamp. He's got a lot of good new songs out there. I'm Josh Spickler. This is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work at Just City, including our five-year report, which you can find at justcity.org slash five years, the number five. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at justcity901. Make sure you're subscribing to The Permanent Record somewhere. Give us a rating. Leave us a review. Just click the little stars. really helps us build an audience. In a Just City, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both. The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast.